I'm Pastor Janine. I'm a pastor at Lake Avenue Church in Pasadena, and I'm pleased to be with you this morning. And what we're going to talk about today is a tale of four parties, four parties today I want to talk about. And I'm going to rewind a little bit just to make sure that you caught everything that's been happening up until this point in Ezra. I know you're studying Ezra 6. We're going to land there. You had two parties in there, but I'm going to grab two more before. So we're going to have four parties. So (laughs) uh, to recap just for two minutes, 600 years before Christ, the Israelites are living in Jerusalem and they're doing okay-ish. They have their temple, they have their nation, they have their families, and they're living their life. And the Babylonians come three times in a 20-year period, and they just utterly destroy them. They kill some of them, they burn their homes, and on the third time, they burn their temple, and they take many of them. Am I too close? Is this better on the volume? Okay. And on the third time, they take um, them, they burn the temple, and they take many of them back to Babylonian. And there, they live for 50 years, almost a generation's worth of people living there. And God says to them, build a life here. Pray for the city that you're in and make it your home. And that's what they do for 50 years. And then the government opens up and says, you know what? It's a new time, new leadership, and we actually like to be a little bit nicer to the people we rule over. So we're going to let some of you go back and rebuild your temple. And a little tiny remnant, a fraction of the over a million people go back to build. And so that's what you read last week was the beginning of that rebuilding and the the laying of the foundation and the altar. And you end with this beautiful verse 11 in Ezra 3. It says, With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Party number one. But right here, and it's literally the word but in verse 12, there's a little bit more going on in party number one. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. While many others shouted for joy, No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Shouts of joy, shouts of weeping in the same space. This is a conflicted party. And I think we've been to a lot of conflicted parties. I think everyone in this room has been to some, had some conflicted feelings at a party recently with the pandemic. Everything shuts down, and then after a little bit, starts to come back, and you're like, yay, we get to come back. And uh, 
not at all like it was before. <laughs> um, I don't get to have food. <laughs> My best friend doesn't want to come. She wants to stay home and do it on Zoom. I, the, the worship leaders are standing in awkward positions far from each other. We're too hot outside. I don't know if communion is safe anymore. That's just worship. And I know you had a lot of other parties, birthday parties, Christmas parties. I didn't get Christmas. I got COVID. That was the gift. Um, <laughs> I did my best not to get it, and I still got it. So I didn't get to celebrate with family. You know, we have all these parties. And I'm sure everybody here has children or grandchildren with graduations and birthdays and everything was conflicted. It was like, yay, we're together. And like, uh, it's not the same. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on here. There's this great joy that, it, the, that it's getting started. And then there's weeping that it's nothing like before. And we, we live that now. So I want you to have in your mind what they had in their mind. So I'm going to read from you in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, the beginning. This is what it was like in the first temple. So that's what they're comparing, the start of the first temple, and now here they are in the second temple. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the joy and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down, the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. That same phrase at each of the temples starting. He is good. His love endures forever. But totally different parties. Because this second party, the one in Ezra 3, was a lot smaller. Listen to this. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. And the king Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000. 22,000 heads of cattle. And 120,000 sheep and goats. Enough to feed millions Hundreds of thousands of animals were sacrificed. So the king and all the people dedicated the temple of God. That's what's in their brain. That first party long ago, even though they weren't there, they've heard the stories over and over again. They knew what it was supposed to be like. And this second party is not the same. And there's joy, but there's weeping. And what steals our joy is comparison. It will steal your joy every time. Whatever it is, whether you're comparing churches or worship services or pastors or your own everyday life, whether you're comparing my neighbor has more, more money, a nicer husband, um, more successful kids, whatever it is, skinnier jeans, whatever, that, you, it will steal your joy. And the truth is, comparison the other way, it'll steal your joy too. If you're like, well, I have this and she doesn't. I have that, she doesn't. 
That feels like a little band-aid when you're feeling wounded, but two, three days later it gets ripped off and the scabs ripped off and the wound is there again. Either way, comparison will steal your joy, and that's what happened here. Now, I have a lot of sympathy for them because there was a lot going on in the first temple that's not there in the second temple. The first temple has, we hear and read right here, they had a holy fire, something like the burning bush that Moses had that burns but doesn't consume. It was a reminder that God was there. They had the cloud of glory, a reminder that God is there. They had the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, it's a box, but inside is the rod Aaron used um, in the Exodus story. Inside is a little bit of manna to remind them of how God had provided for them. Inside are the tablets that Moses had written when God gave them the law of how to live. So it's all this stuff that reminds them of the exodus in their first beginnings with God. They don't have any of that. They don't have the Urim or the Thurim. The reason why we, and those two stones, one's white, one's black, they used it to help them understand in difficult times what God had for them. So they don't have any of these things. And in addition to that, um, in the Babylonian Talmud, it's an Uh, extra-biblical source that um, gives us history. So it's not the Bible, but it gives us some good history. It lists all those things that the second temple didn't have that the first one had. But also they say they didn't have the presence of prophecy. And so when you say you don't have the presence of prophecy, prophecy is God's word to us right now. It means they didn't, they believe they didn't even have God, the presence, the spirit of God with them. And so they wept. And that shut them down. They stopped the building, and they waited 15 years. They basically they had stumbling block after stumbling block. They had an opportunity to work with their neighbors to keep building, and they turned that down. They got fearful of neighbors, and they stopped building. But God had not left them. And you got to read from Haggai and Zechariah. And I want to pick out actually a, a slightly different passage in Zechariah. This is a prophet in their time, in those 15 years, that's telling them the truth of God. So the spirit of God is not gone. The spirit of prophecy is not gone in that time, but they might have thought it wasn't. And this is what Zechariah said to them. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. So both, he started the foundation and Zerubbabel's going to finish it. It needs to happen now. And then this next verse, Zechariah 4.10, who dares to despise the day of small things, small beginnings? This second temple is not going to be what the first one is, but don't despise it. And that is a word for all of us. There are moments that are small, that aren't grand. Um, When we we and we can miss them. We can miss what God is doing because we're comparing it to something bigger. If we look at Acts 2 and see Pentecost and go, where is that here? We're going to be endlessly disappointed. If we look back and remember the Jesus movement in the 70s and go, where are all the people and the, and the passion? We're going to be disappointed. But God is actually moving right now. 
still with you in this place. And you've got to hold on and see that rather than letting comparison steal. Um, Haggai, you read this, but I thought it was so good. I want to read it again because it, it, it says, But now, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Though those are the leaders. The leaders got to be strong. But then it says, be strong, all you people of the land. We all have to be strong. For I, the Lord, am with you. And that's what Haggai is telling these people in these 15 years when they're not building. Saying, build, I'm with you, be strong. How much does be strong, I'm with you, sound like Joshua 1.9? Be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you will go. And that is happening when they're right on the edge. They finish the Exodus story on they're on the edge of good news. Let me remind you of the Exodus story because it's going to come up again. Here are the people of Israel. This time they're only in, they're enslaved for 400 years instead of just 50 to 70 years. They're enslaved for 400 years. That's all these people know. God has taken a, a person named Moses who was born to a Jewish woman who was rescued by Hebrew midwives, small people, small moments, but they made significant impact. And then Pharaoh's, da- Pharaoh's daughter chooses to save this baby. Again, she's risking a lot. Her dad has said all these babies will be killed. She knows this baby's supposed to be killed. And she doesn't just save this baby. She makes it her son. She brings it in. These women aren't really thought of. These are small acts, but we're not going to despise them. They, make, they enable Moses to thrive. And so he has both knowledge of Egypt and Israelites, and he's able to put that together. And God uses him. Eighty years later, God sends ten plagues. And on the tenth plague, it's the, um, what it's going to be is the death of the firstborns unless you have the blood of the lamb. Unless. And so that blood of the lamb on your doorpost becomes a protection. And that's what happens in the Exodus story, protection. And then they, they get, they're able to escape. Pharaoh says, you can go, but you have to go now. So God provides for them with unleavened bread. And then they get their freedom, protection, provision, freedom. But all of this, every time with every plague, it says that God wants the people to be set free so that they can worship him. And that means that it's happening for purpose and worship. And so I'll say those words again because I think all of those are embedded in the Exodus story, which is embedded in who the Israelite people are, and it's embedded in who we are now too. So we've got protection, provision, freedom, purpose, and worship. In all of that. So here we have Joshua 1.9. They're on the edge. They've, they've been set free. They're on the edge of the promised land. And God says, um, I'm, I'm going to be with you in it. So they already have some freedom, but they've not yet stepped into the good news. And that's exactly where our people are now in Ezra 3. They already are there. They've already started building 
they have not yet lived in the temple. Um, Already we have salvation. Already we have the spirit of the living God inside of us to do all those things I just listed from the Exodus story. But we do not yet have the fullness of the good news of heaven. And so we're in this tension place. And when we live in this tension place of both joy and weeping, we have to hold on um, to the good news of God. And we have to be people that uh, seek the joy. And I'm going to explain what that means. You, Joy is a wellspring um, of emotion in society. That's how we talk about it. It's a, a good, new, a, a happy moment. But for Christians, joy um, takes on a new dimension. And so for us to have sustained joy, sustained joy, we have to do the hard work of gratitude. Sustained joy comes from the hard work of gratitude. And I say that because it's not just a natural gratitude that just, oh, today I'm grateful, tomorrow I'm not. No, gratitude is actually something that we have to work on on a daily basis. There's a reason why that song says, count your many blessings, name them one by one, right? Count your many blessings, see what God has done. That is how you are going to get that joy And that's what they were missing out on. So all of that takes us to Ezra 6, which you read. Now we're at the last two parties. When we get to these two parties, what I see is joy. And I don't see any weeping. Do you see any weeping? Twice it says joy, and there's no weeping. So I think what happened in those 15 years is they learned to be grateful for small things. And that's what brought them to this place. Because look at this party in verse 17. It only has 100 bowls. Remember, we had 100,000? 100 bowls, 200 rams, 400 male lambs. Just in the hundreds, not the hundred thousand. It's a totally different party. Um, And yet there's just joy because they've learned to be grateful. And that's the third party where they come together to celebrate that the temple's been built. They did the work. And then the fourth and final party is them celebrating the Passover, the key story of Exodus that story which I reviewed to you. And what I love is in verse 21, it says they ate together with all that had been separated themselves from the unclean practices. So all the Israelites ate together. They actually ate together with some of their neighbors. But the neighbors that they enjoyed close fellowship with were the ones that gave up the unclean practices. And this is a constant tension you're going to keep having throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, is how to deal with the other and how much to bring them in and not. But here they have learned when there's people around them that want to follow God, they're going to bring them in and eat with them. That's the fourth party, which is a very small party. I don't know why my phone keeps beeping. It's supposed to be on silent. 
and it, <laughs> it'll take too much work for me to figure out right now. Sorry about that. Um, this fourth, fourth party, fourth party that we're at is the Passover party that they celebrate there. And this is celebrating, again, remember the blood of the lamb. The only blood we need is the blood of the lamb. The only thing we need is one man, right? That's a small thing. One man. And that's all it took. That's Jesus Christ is all you need. And that beautiful last song that we sang, God, we need you. You're all we need. It's, it feels like a small thing, and yet it's everything. So I want to give you a few things to be grateful for um, to help you out. I see them right there in the story, so I'm just going to give you the analogies. But I, God brought me to a place many years ago to spend a consistent time in focusing in gratitude, to see how many things I could be grateful for every day, to keep track of those. Now, I'll tell you, What happened right after? I thought this was going to be a nice, lovely practice. God brought the darkest season of my life. But I kind of remember it as the sweetest and the best. God held us through financial trouble, through um, a medical crisis, through the loss of a family member. God brought all of it. God was still there, and I look back with sweetness. So uh, this gratitude is serious business to push away the weeping and to bring about the joy. So the first way that we can be grateful is to be grateful for God's character and the things which encourage us towards God. What I see here in the character of God is forgiveness. And they know it because they're offering a sin offering because they know they're going to get forgiveness. I also see here that they know God's presence is, in fact, actually with them, just as Haggai said, because they were able to complete the task. So they can give gratitude for God's presence. I think they should give gratitude for the physical building of the temple and the altar. These things remind them about God. And you each have things that remind that you can give gratitude for. This church, this Bible study, other people in your life that are Christians that encourage you, all of that goes into this First category of God's character and the things which encourage us towards God. The second category is everyday things we take for granted. Now, what I see here in the everyday things they have, they have animals. They have bulls, rams, lambs. They are in the land of milk and honey with animals that they can eat. They can have good food. And that's something we can give thanks for. Other things that we forget to give thanks for, nature, colors, simple things in our life that we just take for granted. Running water, um, (laughs) all the air conditioning today, (laughs) technology. And no one thinks technology until it doesn't work. All right, so that's the second thing. Everyday things we take for granted. A third thing you can be thankful for is the benefits of living here and now. And in this case, the benefits for them of living in that place at that time, they had tools to build. They had supplies to build. People gave them the finances and the supplies in order to build. They had a government that had changed its ways and was willing to support them. And I think a lot of times we take, I'll just take a moment, with the government, we we make it black or white. And it, it really isn't. In politics, neither party 
is, has the monopoly on all the good things. So we can look at our different leaders and say, this is what they're doing right. And then we can call them out for what they're doing wrong. But they're, every, every party is doing some things that are actually lining up with Jesus. And when we are honest about that, then we can have the bigger conversation. So that's my little soapbox. Is thanking, in this case, they have to thank the government. Um, because the government is making this happen for them. So the third thing, the benefits of living here and now. The fourth thing, gratitude for what we have because it's enough. Learning that this smaller temple, without those really amazing things from before, is still enough. It's enough to be with God. In between chapters 3 and 6, what also happens is the story of Queen Esther. And because she was queen, I think they knew that story. And so I want to point out that Esther's story is one of those, what she has is enough. On one hand, she's an orphan. But on another hand, she has an uncle that loves her, that visits her every day, that gives her good advice and coaches her um, and even protects her in that advice. So there's that dichotomy where we can be honest and sad that we don't, that she doesn't have her parents, but also turn towards God and say, thank you for giving me my uncle. So the gratitude for what we have, knowing it is enough. The fifth one, each person that we encounter is a gift. They are encountering a gift right here, being able to eat, being able to eat together and celebrate with the people that they traveled to to do this great task, being able to eat together with the people in that land that had decided to follow their God too and the ways of their God. Those people are gifts. Their leaders are gifts. Haggai, Zechariah, Zerubbabel, Jeshua are all gifts to them. So they, And it's our opportunity to think about the people in our lives are gifts to us and to be grateful to God for them. And the last one I have is to be a gift is a gift in a place of gratitude, which means to have purpose, to serve, is actually something we can be grateful to God that we even get to do. I think there must have been tremendous joy that they got to be the ones to rebuild the temple. I think they must have just thought that was so cool. I think years later they would be telling their children and grandchildren, I was there the day we celebrated, and we rebuilt. You all have purpose And we get to give thanks to God for that purpose. So, as I end today, I just, I want to encourage you to really lean into gratitude. It's how they could have joy in a small thing. And we've got, and it's how you can have joy in your everyday life. Thank you. Thank you, Janine. That was a wonderful reminder to live in gratitude. And I am so grateful for all of you here. And um, I'm just going to close us in prayer and then dismiss you to your groups and to eat together because what a wonderful chance we get to eat together today. Father God, I just thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for these celebrations and um, for all of the things that you've done for us that we can be grateful for, for each person in our lives and for each small thing that you've done. May we leave here today and notice each and every one of those times, Lord, and remember them as we go through our days. 
Lord, we are so grateful for you, and we're grateful for one another, and be in our midst this morning. Bless our time together, and may it just be a wonderful blessing. In your name I pray, amen. Go eat.